Well, again, we say greetings to you in Jesus' name. It's good to be here one more time. And uh, at such a time as this, what a blessing. I, uh, I trust that, Dave and Jean, you feel pretty richly blessed um, what I'm hearing today and uh, have experienced along with you here in this time of sending you off is, is a real rich time of blessing. It's nice when a fellowship can do that. I caught something in Brother Earl's prayer this morning that he probably didn't really intend to say, but uh, that's why we're going. That was something that he prayed. And uh, he almost corrected himself. Uh, well, why we're sending them, you know. But I'd like us to get the vision of the fact that we're going. We are going in the person of Dave and Jean and their family, but we are going. That's why we are there and how we're there. It's a very important aspect of missions, especially in congregational missions, that as a congregation, as a body of believers, you feel like I am involved in that work in a very, very personal way, even though physically I'm not going. Spiritually, I am going. And my heart and spirit goes with Dave and Jean as, as they leave. The title of our message today is The Missionary Calling. And I guess that's probably not a big surprise to anybody, but, uh, you know, old missionaries never die. They just give send-off services. <laughs> I, uh, I love missions. I have loved missions. My great-grandfather, Reuben Horst, who was in Tanzania in 1950 to 53, would come and talk about things when I was a little boy, and I'd hear him saying stuff like this about what happened in Africa. And it somehow put a seed in my heart that I haven't been able to pull, and I probably really haven't tried too hard. So, uh, today we would like to talk about missionary calling, but to alleviate any tension or pressure on Dave and Jean, this message is not for you. This message is for us. It's for all of us. Because I think, as was brought up by what Tim shared, we do all have a missionary calling, and I think it's good for us to be reminded about what that calling is, and that we would renew, or we say sometimes re-hit the the reset button on doing the work of that calling, no matter where it is that we're called. What is the work of a missionary? Now, we talked about this recently at a mission committee meeting, that the word missionary doesn't actually show up in the Bible. Uh, And someone had raised a bit of a concern about that, that it's not actually a title from the Bible. And I guess I threw out that uh, Trinity and rapture are two words that are not in the Bible either, but I don't plan to stop preaching on them anytime soon. And so, what is the role? What is the work of a missionary? And the second question is, Who is called to be a missionary? And I think we probably all got on to that answer already. You know, it is a calling. It's a calling to carry the gospel message. It's something that requires building relationships and making disciples. You know, it is impossible to fulfill the Great Commission without building relationships. You ever think about that? Preaching the gospel, that's getting up in the pulpit and just preaching, right? I don't have to build any relationships. When I was a young minister, I loved that kind of thinking. 
I was a revivalist preacher, and I would go take eight nights of revival any place they would put me, and I took them. And I always said, it's great. It's much better than being a pastor. You can fly in, drop your bombs, and fly away. But that is not what a pastor is. That is not what a missionary is. And a man who does only that may do more damage than actual good. And so now, I didn't really plan to share this, but as Brother John was sharing here about his 19 years of experience and sometimes not knowing what to do, I look back at those almost 19 years that I've known him and realize that I've admired him because he was a steady hand at the rudder. But it sounds to me like maybe Jesus had his hand on top of his hand and that was why there was a steady hand at the rudder. When the waves are throwing back and forth, if we flow with it, we're going to be in trouble. We soon tip the boat. And so it's important that we do look to Jesus. You know, the calling of missionary is, maybe that word is not in the Bible, but there is a word that is in the Bible, and that is to be an ambassador. An ambassador for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, what does an ambassador do? Anybody? What does an ambassador do? He represents. And some more. You're going to say that. Any other fresh ideas? That's actually solid. There's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. That is a spelled out definition. Here's what I found. It says the highest ranking diplomatic representative appointed by one country or kingdom to represent it in another kingdom. Are you and I called to be ambassadors? We are. And we are sent from our kingdom, the kingdom of God. We've been translated into this kingdom. We can claim no honor or glory of our own for being a part of this kingdom. But because we've been translated into this kingdom, we are now called by our king to represent him in the kingdom we came from. That's probably one of the most challenging things to do. Go back to the kingdom we came from and represent our king. And yet that is our calling and ambassadorship. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'd like to look at a few verses there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'll begin reading in verse 17. While you're looking for that, I'm going to pull this thing a little closer. Hopefully won't cause it to topple. All right, first, pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearing this morning's hour. What beautiful words. And so, the word ambassador is there, 
And we'll notice that it's not just Paul talking about himself, but rather Paul talking of all believers. If you've been born again, you're an ambassador. Say it with me. I am an ambassador. Try again. I am an ambassador. And so we need to study what that means to me and what I need to do with that calling because I can't just shrug it off. Now, it it is almost easy in our area here to ignore that calling. And unfortunately, it's almost too easy. But do you realize that we have a tremendous influx of people right into this area that know nothing about this message. They know nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it wasn't that long ago in Pottsville. uh, I was coming down an alley, and it was just about dusk, and two young girls. And if any of you have heard this story before, you'll have to forgive me. Old people get forgetful, and sometimes they say the same things twice. But at any rate, I was going down the alley, and I was by myself, which is abnormal. Typically in Pottsville, we like to have young men especially since we have mostly young men, we like to have them go in pairs. I was by myself coming from one Bible study to another, and I saw two young ladies, probably 17, 18, 19 years old, a white girl and a black girl coming down the alley, very scantily dressed, short shorts and halter tops. And I purposed in my heart, I'm just going to say hello as I pass them, and I'm going to keep on going. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to try to witness to them. I didn't really feel comfortable doing that on a back alley by myself. All right, so that's that's where we're at. Coming down the alley, I step up on the little tiny, little narrow sidewalk on the alley and uh, said hello as they walked by. About 10 feet past me, the younger of the two, the white girl says, hey, I want to braid your beard. And I stopped in shock, in horrified shock. I have daughters that are older than that girl. And if one of my daughter met some guy that she didn't know from Adam on the back alley of Pottsville and opened up an invitation like that, I'd be horrified. I'd be horrified. And depending who she'd have met, she'd been horrified too. And so it stopped and I was arrested in my heart that, wait a minute, this girl does need what I'm selling. And I turned around and I just motioned for the two girls to come back to me. And they did. And I said, I'm really not interested in having you braiding my beard, but I do want to know, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And the girl looked at me with a blank look. I said, do you know that Jesus Christ is alive? No. You don't know that he rose from the dead? No. Do you know he's coming again? Why would he come here? Total ignorance. Heathen darkness, 45 minutes from your house. And you don't have to go that far to find it. You don't have to go that far to find it. So it's easy for us. We're amongst lots of other believers and people who may not be the same persuasion that we are, but we figure they're probably okay. But, you know, we live with a heritage in this area Pennsylvania actually started under what was known as the Holy Experiment. So we live with a heritage that says live and let live. But I'd like you to realize that if we're not careful, it isn't that. It is live and let die. And we let people go to hell around us. 
And we ignore our calling to be an ambassador because we fail to see the opportunities that God, God intends for each of us to have. If he didn't intend for us to be an ambassador, I really think it would have been nice that the day we got born again that he just whoop, took us up. You know, just like Elijah, fiery chariot, the whole scene. That would have been great. Or off on a long walk like Enoch and just, you know, was not. But that is not what he did. And there's a reason why he didn't. And we need to awaken ourselves daily to the reason why he didn't. Lord, I bless you that I was able to rise from bed this morning. What do you have in mind for me today? And that might be just sweeping the floor. But it could be that there will be an opportunity that will come our way today to be an ambassador for him with somebody else. And that somebody else might be in my family, it might be in my neighborhood, it might be a total stranger. We just never know. We need to be open to the, the possibilities that God has for us. I notice that um, I need to first off be committed to the one that I represent. That very first statement, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What are the all things? Well, I think that one of the all things, at least, is that whereas in the time past I lived for myself, I now live for my king. And so my life isn't mine. It's his. The second thing I think of is I need to remember why I'm here. It's easy to get sidetracked on purpose. The third thing is that we're called to be pilgrims and strangers. And that is a challenge, too. We were from here. We've been called out and translated into the kingdom of light. And we're sent back to where we came from. How easy is it for us to forget that we belong from that kingdom over there, not this one? It's easy to forget that we are called to be pilgrims and strangers. Now, is this a calling to a ministry? It is. He tells us here several times in these verses we read that is a ministry of reconciliation. So what am I reconciling? Well, I best have been reconciled myself first, right? We have peace with God through what? Paul writes in the Romans, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's reconciliation. I wasn't at peace with God. I was at enmity with God. I was actually one of God's enemies by choice because I chose sin and I chose to follow Satan, his enemy. But he has chosen to open the path for reconciliation with me. And so he's saying, I have a ministry of reconciliation that is me helping open the path of reconciliation with other sinners. Uh, My wife sometimes says, uh, an evangelist is nothing more or less than one beggar telling another beggar where to get the bread. Right? Think about it. Okay, let's go on. We have to find creative and redeeming ways to bridge the gap of human conflict. What human conflict? Well, if you've not been around, there's plenty out there. Uh, We usually don't have to go far from home to find it. But what is this human conflict that we're discussing here? In this ministry of reconciliation, what is it that I need to be doing to bridge this gap? And why is there a gap anyway? I'd like to think about this as the conflict of the comfort zones. Now, uh, Dave and Gene are going to get that in a, in a magnified way. 
Conflict of the comfort zones. They're going to be leaving what they've known here. And I know they've been in Grenada before, so this is not altogether new to them. But they're going to be going to somewhere new. What they knew in Grenada is going to help them, but it's not going to be the same. They're going to go to somewhere new. And some of their comfort zone is going to be challenged. I'd like to think about this. This this target represents you. Now, maybe you felt like a target before, but I'd like us to think about what we're going to do here. The center of us, when I have a spot around me, that's my comfort zone. I have the things I've always done, the places I've always went, the, uh, the things I've always eaten, the things I've always seen. Those are pertaining to me, and I feel most comfortable there. All right? Now, in my job, I taste food for a living. That sounds a little strange, but that's what I need to do. And, and I taste food and replicate food for a living. So I may taste a product that came from Thailand. Um, and I don't always know what's in that product that I'm tasting. And I need to taste it and try to discern what's in it so that I can make the same thing for somebody else. Um, that is not a job for everybody, is it? Some people would be really, really uh, struggling to uh, eat some of the things that I eat. But comfort zone, all right? There is a word that talks about the me uh, that's in the middle. It's ego. Centric means center. Me in the middle. My comfort zone by nature, has me in the middle. Okay? Now, um, we have another word for that, and we don't like this word because we'd like to say that this one's completely crucified. But that's self. Okay? Me in the middle, that's self. I'm comfortable, and I will work very, very, very hard to stay within that little comfort zone because it's me. It's myself. It's I. And I don't like to be uncomfortable. How many people enjoy being uncomfortable? No? I should tell you about my last trip home from Haiti. You could have been uncomfortable with me. Nobody likes being uncomfortable. It is the way we are. It's part of our makeup. But we need to recognize some of this because if we can't go past this thing, it's going to hinder us from fulfilling our calling to be an ambassador. The next thing I'd like to think of is we go a little bit broader than this, and it's still a comfort zone to us. It's part of our whole comfort zone, and we're going to call this ethno. That means my culture, my background, and we're going to, we're going to put a few more things there. My family, my clan, if I have a clan. Uh, what else? Tribe, if I'm a tribal person, might even be bigger than my clan. Uh, you know, we Mennonites are a tribe, right? Put five of us in a room, we'll soon figure out what fifth cousins we are. We are a tribe. Okay? A tribe and subculture. My wife and I met in public high school. She didn't go to church and... I was about finished going too. She had no real Mennonite background, but we soon found out after we were married that we're related. 
Okay. Ethnocentric, egocentric, self. Now, I feel pretty comfortable with family, clan, and my own tribal people, my own subculture. But let's go a little broader. I, I hear people abroad saying, if I can just get back to America. Okay, so we can go broader than that. How about nationalism? That's part of my comfort zone. I feel comfortable if I'm still in the USA compared to being outside of the USA. Okay, and from that we start getting things like patriotism. And um, some that aren't quite as as acceptable, but still a reality, racism. And uh, feelings of superiority. Do you think that's a problem sometimes? Ask anybody outside of the U.S. about whether the U.S. has a superiority problem, and uh, they will all quickly affirm that we do. I was just talking to a young Frenchman who uh, called on me, a salesman that called on me, and uh, unlike many Frenchmen, he didn't have an arrogant, we're French and there's nothing else attitude. But he definitely feels like in this country we have, a, we have an issue with superiority. Okay, so this is what makes up my comfort zone. I'm most comfortable right here. I'm comfortable, pretty comfortable in this one. And if I have to say, if I'm going to live abroad or live here, I'm, I'm comfortable within my country setting. Um, we, I trust, are past the point of patriotism and racism. I'm not sure if we're past the point of superiority. That one's really, really sneaky. He doesn't raise his head. He just, like a worm, like a parasite, burrows in and uh, lives within us and causes us to act and think and do things, sometimes even say things, that would give the idea that really we are superior to other people around us. So, here's the problem. While this is me, and this is where I feel comfortable, outside of me are other people... Maybe this one's a Buddhist. Maybe this one's uh, a Muslim. Over here we have a Sikh. And over here um, you choose. Maybe Roman Catholic. All right? They're all outside of that circle of comfort that I have. And they may even live here. But many of them have come from other nations or live in other nations. How am I going to bridge the gap of getting from here so that I can reach down to here. That is the challenge, the conflict of the comfort zones. Now, we would say that we're not self-centered, right? Have you ever uh, thought, when I'm challenged by someone else about what I do, if it wasn't right, I wouldn't be doing it? Did you ever think that way? It has to be right. I'm doing it, right? (laughs) You've never thought that way. All right. How about my way or the highway? You ever feel that way? Listen, I know what I'm doing. And it's right because this is the way we always did it. It's my way or the highway. How about if everyone were just like me, the world would be a better place? You ever think that? Now, we would never say it, but have you ever thought it? Here's one that's much more subtle. 
you know, Grandma makes the best pies in all the world. You think she does? <laughs> I want to taste one. <laughs> I'm a fruit evaluator, remember? I'll, I'll soon tell you. <laughs> That's a subtle one. And it doesn't, it, you don't mean evil by it, of course. It's complimentary to Grandma. Grandma probably beams when you talk like that. But guess what? You are giving evidence of ethnocentricity. I am centered around my ethnos, my cultural group. And uh, there's nobody that doesn't like us. That's dangerous. And that will stand in the way of being an ambassador for Christ when we get down to it. And I think we all know that. And yet, it's good for us to be refreshed in this because it does happen. How about, uh, if it ain't Dutch, it ain't much. Does that sound like a proud statement or what? Now, I don't hear that in Lancaster County. But uh, in Berks County, I do. And I don't hear it from plain people. I hear it from old uh, Lutherans and Reformed and whatnot. They, uh, they're pretty strong on Pennsylvania German. It, if it ain't Dutch, it ain't much. So uh, don't come to us with someone, uh, someone else's culture. We don't want to hear about it. That is a very proud attitude. Now, I'm Pennsylvania German. I don't intend to be anything else. And uh, I enjoy eating chicken pot pie and uh, a schnitzel nep and you name it, and I like it. But it's not all there is in the world. It's not all there is in the world. And we have to be careful about these attitudes because they can really, really stop us from even having the opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ. So which is more important, my calling or my comfort zone? Can I actually push myself to leave my comfort zone? Just come right out of here to come down here and try to understand, even if I won't agree with somebody else, can I enlarge my circle enough to do that? Well, that's the only way that I can possibly be an ambassador. I must enlarge my circle of my comfort zone to where I'm out of it. I've stepped out of my comfort zone. Now, that don't mean you're going to step out of everything in your comfort zone, but you're going to step out of it enough so that I can hear the heartbeat of someone else who has all these very same things, but they're not the same as mine. And some of them may not even be right, but I still have to hear them to gain the right to teach them something different. That's the challenge of being an ambassador. So, my calling is actually more important than my comfort zone. Jesus Christ is the greatest example of one who left the comfort zones of heaven. His most comfortable place was right with the Father. Can you imagine? He sat by the right hand of God. All the glories of heaven were His. He viewed and observed and helped with all of creation. He ruled as a king on the throne. And he left his comfort zone and he came to this earth. Did he take a comfortable place on this earth? You know, the earth was his footstool, but he didn't even take a comfortable place on the footstool. He took the lowest of the lowest of the low. And though he counted not robbery to be equal with God, he made of himself no reputation. What are we saying by that? He died to his ego, to his ethnos, to his nationalism, because he wanted to be an ambassador for God the Father. There is no greater example we have than him. 
Is my comfort zone more important than the comfort zone of others? We would really like to say, I would like to say, that myself has been nailed to the cross. But when it comes down to it, and I have to sacrifice my comfort zone to try to win someone else, I still struggle with that. And I realize that, okay, self might be crucified, but he's still alive and trying hard to kick. And so we need to recognize these things or we will never get to this point. We'll never be able to get beside that one who is not the same as me and try to help them to see Jesus. Let's look a little bit further here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults. Does this sound like comfort? I, I don't think I've heard too much about comfort yet. Paul says, I have a job to do. And I will accept all of these things if I have to. He didn't go looking for it. But if I have to, I'll accept all these things for the sake of accomplishing my calling in Jesus Christ to be an ambassador. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. Now, I'd like especially to notice here verses 6 and 7. If you don't have them highlighted or underlined, you might want to because these are the keys to be an ambassador. The to-do list for an ambassador. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Now, let's stop and think about it. This is the to-do list for ambassadors. Purity. When I am going to somebody to witness to them, let's say it's a Muslim, do I have pure motives in my heart towards this person? His worldview is shaped by his ethnos, his ego, his everything, his nationalism. His worldview can be totally, totally warped. But do I have right motives when I go to him? Are they pure? It's important, it's critical that we evaluate ourselves. Second area is knowledge. Am I willing to be a learner? No one has knowledge if they're not willing to learn. You ever think about that? I went to Haiti to teach, but I soon found out I had a lot to learn. And the Haitians were very patient with me, taught me lots of things. I learned things about farming I'd have never learned in Pennsylvania. There's lots of things that we can learn from others. And when we go with a spirit of being a learner, we will soon win the opportunity to also be a teacher. But if we go with the attitude, I've got the answers and you need to listen, that's not going to fly. There's very few of us in our comfort zone that will accept someone stepping in from outside our comfort zone and telling us, you need to learn from me. Now, we can gain that right 
and they can gain that right to speak into our lives that way by knowledge, but that knowledge comes by being a learner. Patience. I had to think of this one. How patient was God with me? Maybe he didn't have to be as patient with you as he was with me. But there's really not one good reason that I'm here before you today. There's really not. I should probably be a drunk somewhere in the gutter because that's what I was when he found me. But why was he patient with me? You know, that kind of patience comes because he looked at what he had in mind for me to be, not for what I was. And I have to constantly refocus when I'm working with people who aren't saved. You can get frustrated. Some of you know that we get to Pottsville and I've been having Bible studies with Chris and Dave for almost five years now. And guess what? They're still Roman Catholics. Can I be patient with them the way God has been patient with me? Do I feel like I have to push them, twist their arm? Oh, then I think of the song. The song written by Felix Mons. Christ, no one is coercing his glory land to share. He's not doing that. And if Christ is not twisting anybody's arms to conversion, who do I think I am? That I'm twisting people's arms to conversion. Jesus gave the message. And then many times disappeared. Jesus created curiosity and then went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the people had to say, what did he mean by that? And they would go running around the sea to try to find him. He wasn't twisting anybody's arms. He didn't even twist the arms of his disciples, who maybe should have had him twist a little. But he didn't. That wasn't his method of reaching out. Patience. The Holy Ghost. A lot of times people say to me, how do you witness people on the street? I say, I don't know. How do you witness to them? If you're not mindful of the Holy Ghost and you just come up with some canned sales pitch, that probably isn't going to work. Lyndon, does that work in sales even? People usually pick up that this is you know, the same thing you told the last guy <laughs> in the same way. It's a matter of minding in our business of being an ambassador, minding the Holy Spirit. Because what word I share today to this person may be exactly what they needed to hear. And if I use it on someone else tomorrow, it may not be what they needed to hear. Some saved by fear. Others by, what is the term? Gentleness, compassion. Compassion, I believe, making a difference. There's a difference in how we need to work with people. How we need to relate to them. Love unfeigned. Here's one that is a big one. Um, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And uh, if that's not real, heathen will soon pick it up. They might pick it up quicker than you and I do. We might be able to pretend that we love each other a lot here and, you know, no one really gets on that we don't. But when you try to pretend that you love someone on the street, they soon, they soon smell the rat if you're not real. They soon know whether or not you're genuine. And so genuine love, genuine love is, is broad and we can't spend, you could have a whole message on that. I think 1 Corinthians 13 gives a very good explanation of what it is. And then, 
Love by itself, of course, is lopsided, and immediately Paul gives us the balancing, the word of truth. I represent the Eternal One. Okay? Uh, last Thursday night, I went into Abdul's shop, a Muslim man that we go to to have Bible study with, and uh, there was an American there who was raised in Pottsville who has converted to Islam. That's the second one I found since I'm up there. And this young man... Uh, he, he had that kind of, you know, almost at you type of, and I thought, I'm not getting into a debate with this young man. I, that's not what I'm here about, and that's counterproductive to uh, the others that are also in the room. Well, finally, he saw that that wasn't going to happen, and he changed gears completely. And he says, say, he says, can I feel your beard? Wow, man, he says, that's neat. <laughs> I said, hey, you go to Haiti or Africa, they all want to touch it to find out if it's connected. <laughs> I represent the eternal one. That young man asked me, are you a Muslim? When well, I'm in a Muslim shop and there's several Muslims there, what should I say? Well, of course not. Now, I did miss the mark. I like to say I am a follower of, of Jesus Christ. And I said, I am a Christian, which immediately this man, he was formerly a Roman Catholic, converted to Islam. So he put me into the, the Catholic thing. That wasn't where I wanted to be. So I'll have to work myself out of the ditch if I get to meet him again. Love unfeigned, and yet the word of truth. I represent the eternal one. When you're dealing with people from other cultures and other backgrounds, they're going to tell you things that they believe are true. They believe it, because that's what they've always been taught. Okay, my friend Abdul, he'll tell me all the time, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And I think that's great. He has that truth down. And Jesus talked the first day he was born. It's a Muslim tradition. (laughs) And so I listened to him. Now, I could say, Abdul, you're wrong. I could. As a matter of fact, in my heart, I'd like to. But I just listen. What does he really believe about this Jesus who I'm trying to talk to him about? He's telling me about Jesus. All right, and I'm trying to talk to him about Jesus. What does he really know that's real? And then as we have time and opportunity, we work in, you know, Abdul, some of these traditions don't have any foundation, neither in your Quran nor in the Bible. What does the Bible actually say? And so it's a challenge. It's a challenge, too, because his language, his English is very limited. All right. Well, let's talk about what else are packed into those two verses. The power of God. The power of God in shoe leather. The power of God that says, you know what? You're Muslim. My people here hate Muslims. But I don't care about that. I'm here to represent God. I'm going to love you anyway. And I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of you. You know, if they sense fear, immediately they'll recognize that too. The power of God in shoe leather. Um, sometimes it's demonstrations. I know I was talking to him one time and I said, you know that sometimes in Haiti we had people that were possessed with devils. And I said, you know, it was only at the name of Jesus Christ that those devils would leave. And that kind of clicked because he's seen Muslim imams try to cast out devils and it just doesn't seem to work. The name of Muhammad has no real power there. And I don't know if they actually name the name of Muhammad over them or if they're just trying to read the Quran to them or whatever. But their method of casting out devils doesn't work. Usually ends up finding folk 
healers, giving them charms and things a little like our witch doctors in Haiti. And then the armor of righteousness. That righteousness is God's, God's provision. It's not mine. If I come with my righteousness, immediately this person's going to notice that too. Love that's not genuine, they notice. And self-righteousness, they'll get it like that. They'll pick it up before we realize that we've presented it that way. And so we need to examine ourselves about that issue of self-righteousness. How do I work with those of other cultures? You know, it would have been so easy. Uh, part of this ethnocentricity. It would have been so easy if Peter would have never went to Cornelius' house. We could be monocultural. Mono means one. Yes. If Peter would have never went to Cornelius' house, and it would have just stayed a Jewish thing, you and I would have all had to go through proselytism, become Jews, to be a Christian. That would have been so simple. There'd been one culture, one language, one everything, one rule. It would have been one for everybody. That would have been so simple. But somehow, and for some reason, God didn't order it that way. And you know, Acts chapter 15, uh, if we could have stayed monocultural, you know, it would have all just fit right in here. Acts 15 wouldn't have been a necessary the Council of Jerusalem, the discussion about whether or not the, the Gentiles should be circumcised, that wouldn't have had even come up. Now imagine what a challenge it was for all of those Jewish people sitting together and discussing the subject of whether non-Jews have to become proselytes anymore or not. That was a major thing. That had to be a huge thing for them. And to come to the final conclusion that no, they don't need to. They can put their faith in Jesus Christ without circumcision. Listen, all of us know we have kept the law or tried to keep the law from our youth and we've never got it done. And if we could be justified by keeping the law, obviously one of us would have got it done. And none of us did. We're all guilty and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Somehow. Transgressed and broken God's laws. Somehow. And so... How can we put this upon the shoulders of these Gentile believers and try to make them like us? How can we do it? And you know, Acts 15 can't be taken away. Acts 11 can't be taken away. God had in mind something bigger than a Jewish nation. He didn't ask the Jews to become Gentiles. But neither did he ask the Gentiles to become Jews. And that has put a tension within Christianity ever since. Now, I think it's actually a, a right, healthy tension if it can be handled right. But it takes us out of our comfort zone, even within the context of fellowship, doesn't it? If I just want everything to be comfortable to me, I'm going to have a hard time having fellowship with someone who came from somewhere else. And that's a challenge. I, I, I don't know that I have all the answers to that challenge, because it is a challenge. You know, we have a, uh, a mission statement. 
And it talks about some of these things in here. I don't know how many of you have ever seen this mission statement. That doesn't have my drawing on the back. It looks something like this. The mission statement makes a statement about cultural maintenance. You know, it wasn't that many years ago that the, uh, the people who study human cultures and um, books like National Geographic were taking some pretty big uh, pot shots at missionaries. Missionaries, we go to foreign cultures, we invade these primitive peoples, and we influence them to be like us, Americans, or whatever we, wherever we're from. And so, in addressing that, we put a statement about cultural maintenance in our mission statement. It says this, cultural maintenance, we believe every human culture has cultural practices that fit in one of the following groups. One, they're consistent with Christ and the gospel. Two, are neither for nor opposed to the gospel. And three, are definitely opposed to the gospel. So, one of those three, everything can be divided or parsed out. First two groups need to be changed. The first two groups need not be changed. Sorry. Where possible, we must teach the truth behind an already existing custom of the first two groups. All cultural practices from any culture that oppose the teaching of Christ are pagan and cannot glorify God. These must die for a clear line of holiness to be drawn as separation unto God is taught. Many inappropriate practices do not begin overnight and will not end overnight. Patience and perseverance is needed. Things being done differently are not necessarily wrong. We need to seek wisdom from the Holy Spirit, not from what was right in our home culture. Ultimately, we do not believe that Africans need to become like our home culture, but rather like Christ. We are striving to plant living, growing Christian church witnesses in each culture. That's an important vision. So, the first one, right according to the gospel. We need to get a hold of things that they are doing right. Okay? Let's say that uh, in the culture of Ivuna, the people are very hospitable. I believe they probably are. They may even surpass us. I know in Haiti, I didn't know anything about hospita- hospitality till I got there, and they taught me. Um, I thought I did, but I, I really learned what it really is. So, do I have to change that? I don't need to change that. They may not even realize that their hospitality is a biblical character trait that God wants to see. So, what do I do? I need to teach them. Here's the biblical reason you're doing this. When I got to Haiti, almost every woman in church had a covering on her head. Did I have to tell her that you ought to take that covering off and wait until you get converted and then put it on again? No. I give her the reason why your culture taught you this way, 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 way back and nobody could even tell you why you're doing it. So those are positive things that are there. Did we have to do any changes? Well, okay. We had a red silk covering that was worn, a head wrap in red satin, and it was used regularly in voodoo services. The red satin, it was often marked someone that was dedicated to the devil. So, that didn't mean every satin scarf that you saw around was dedicated to the devil, but there was enough of a question mark on it that we encouraged, and our believers readily grabbed onto that, let's not wear those satin red ones. But did I have to change it so it matched ours? You know what happened? Some zealous sister amongst the Haitians decided to make up a whole bunch of flowing veils like our sisters wore and uh, distribute them one Sunday. And it was then that I found out a shocking fact after we'd been there for a year and a half. They were always kind of putting up with us and what we were doing, but had some checks in their heart about the practice. Now, here's what it was. The Haitian women wrapped their head completely. Their hair was covered. 
if anything, there might have been two little tiny braids about an inch and a half or two long that stuck out the side. That was about as long as their hair got with their lack of nutrition. And uh, as soon as these flowing veils started showing up, in the Haitian culture, to bear the forehead, to bear the hair on the front of the head was a symbol of prostitution. And the old sisters really reacted. The old women. They had grace with us because we were strangers. We didn't know. But when the Haitians started doing what we were doing, they had an issue with it. And so it's important for us to try to bless and honor and respect the good things that they're doing. The right things that they're doing. Even if that's not a sign of prostitution in ours, it's definitely not here. But it was there. And so we needed to honor and respect that and try to learn from them on it. How about neutral things? There's some things that are neither for the gospel nor against the gospel. Let me ask you something. Do you eat food with your fingers? How about how about mush? You eat mush with your fingers? We call it ugali in Tanzania. How about uh, rice? Do you eat rice with your fingers? Would you feel comfortable? The first time I tried to eat rice with my fingers, I had it falling down into my chin and my beard, and the little children were laughing. They said, that big grown man, he doesn't know how to eat. How about chopsticks? How many of you ever tried chopsticks? Do you like eating with chopsticks? you do it often? We'd all be a little thinner if we had to do it often, right? <laughs> now, which one of those is right? You use a spoon or a fork, probably. Big portion of the world uses their fingers. Go to India. There's a lot of people in India. They eat with their fingers, primarily. Africa, many in Africa eat with their fingers. Go to the Orient, and they eat with chopsticks in many cultures. Which one's right? How many of you believe the spoons are right? Oh, you're not even being honest with me today. <laughs> yes, you do. You're going to go home here to this fellowship meal. You're going to go home. You're going to this fellowship meal. I'm not going to see any of you pick up chopsticks or eat with your fingers. You're going to pick up a spoon because that's the right way to do it. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I'm glad that you're catching the idea that we have to think outside of that box and know that for that African to eat with his hand is just as right as it is for you to eat with your spoon because it's a non-biblical issue. It doesn't matter. If he's happy eating with his fingers, then join him. Join him. It won't hurt you. It really won't. Now, that one's, that one's not so hard on us. Let's go to another one. We discussed this one. How about holding hands? How about holding hands? If I invited Joshua up here and I took him by the hand and him and I walked hand in hand down the aisle here, that would probably make some of you feel like you're out of your comfort zone. Josh would probably be the one that feels the most out of his comfort zone. <laughs> in many cultures, including the Haitian culture, which is like Africa removed by 200 years, for two men to walk hand in hand is a very common thing. And it doesn't mean what you think of if you saw two men holding hand in America. It doesn't mean that at all. They put a tremendous emphasis on friendship. And Pastor Levy and I would walk right through a crowded marketplace and he'd take a hold of my hand. And I'd think, okay, i got to get over this. <laughs> I didn't say it's comfortable leaving your comfort zone. It probably won't be. And I'm not suggesting you bring it back here necessarily. I don't think that would be understood well here. 
But it is something that we have to look at and not regard as necessarily wrong, just different. Okay? Now there, the one time in Haiti, my wife and I had just gotten back into the mountains and one of the men in the church recognized us while we were in the marketplace and I was holding my wife's hand and we're walking through market. And he says, here, he says, I'll help you buy your things. You don't know what to get where. He says, I'll show you. So he's taking us from one end of the market to the other and I'm dragging my wife through. And there's probably 5,000 people crowded in this little alleyway. And we're walking through this. And uh, finally, he comes to bananas. He says, do you want bananas? I said, I don't know. Let me ask my wife. And I turned around and talked to her. And he was like shocked. Is this your wife? Well, yeah. Who did you think I was walking through market holding your hand? <laughs> well, he just thought it was some young girl I was helping. In their culture, it would be very normal for an older man to take a younger girl by the hand, not his wife. Matter of fact, I have yet to see on any regular basis a Haitian man ever hold his wife's hand in public. Now, I will say this. I felt that and was one that I could break. And felt it was actually even good for them to think about it a little differently. So after I was there about a year and a half, I began to ask some questions to the brothers that were there. And I said, how many of you believe that holding hands is a sign of friendship? Oh, yes, we do, Pastor. Absolutely. And so you think it would be all right to uh, walk hand in hand with your friend? Yes. How about your best friend? Well, sure. I said, isn't your wife your friend? And they got a dumb look on their face like, we never thought of that. <laughs> one couple tried it, a Haitian couple. Mocked, they mocked them to scorn. Everywhere they went, they just mocked them. Uh, when I would walk hand in hand with my wife, because although I knew that that's not their practice, I thought it doesn't hurt them to see something different. So I'd walk through market. The old women would always yell, let her go, let her go, we're not going to steal her. <laughs> It's not wrong. It's just different. And we have to try in going to other cultures, understand what are they looking at? What are they thinking when all of this is occurring? Now, I know what it looks like to me, but is that really what it is? Because I might be very wrong in my assumption. If I try to peg it into my comfort zone, I will probably be wrong. And then finally, there are those wrong things that are opposed to the gospel. That takes teaching and training by the word of God to break the cultural customs. And if it is something, for instance, it was a cultural custom to live together without marriage, I didn't have any fear of crushing culture on that one. It was a cultural custom to worship your ancestors in voodoo services where they burned candles on the tombs and did prayers and read psalms over the tombs. I had no fear in breaking that one. There were pieces of antiquity that had been there for hundreds of years used as altars to the devil. I had no fear of destroying those. But the point was, how do we do it? We teach. We show the Word of God. This is what God has to say. And then they take the sledgehammer or the digging iron and they start tearing away on that thing that they had been deathly afraid of to do just a week before. Because the chain was broken. The chain was broken. And so... This is all that I have to share today concerning what is a missionary. Now, who is the missionary? Don't say Dave and Jean. Don't say Tim. Tim and Cheryl. You and I are missionaries. You know, just talking about Muslims, there's 8 million Muslims in America today. It's a fast-growing number. I can't keep up with it. They keep coming in. And you know, while I'm there in Pottsville working with Muslim people, 
to evangelize them, they would like to evangelize me. And if we don't win them, they will win your children. And if you don't believe me, come with me and I'll introduce you to Amy and Tony. Two children raised in religious homes in Pottsville who are today dyed in the wool Muslims that I don't have any real hope of getting them trained back to Christianity. I, I would long to see it happen, but I'm really doubtful. They're hard. They have a hatred toward Christianity. They have been offended. They are bitter. And they have embraced Islam with both arms. And so, will we rise to the occasion and be what we're called to be, ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and reach out to a lost world? Or are we going to narrow down our comfort zone, just stay in here, and find others that are at least close enough to us that we can tolerate each other and let the world go to hell, for lack of a better term. That's the question. That's the challenge. And it's for us to get the answer. God bless you.